Father, your grace is a powerful, powerful thing. It is that power that broke through our hardened hearts, extracted from our souls a heart of stone, and have replaced it with a heart of flesh, a living heart that lives to you and loves you. Father, praise you for this glorious change you have made in the hearts of all who believe by your grace. But, oh, Father, how I pray this morning that you would help us not to take our salvation lightly. And I pray for any in this room who may, apart from their own knowledge right now, be a religious unbeliever who is here today because they consider themselves a Christian and yet they still lack the saving grace, the transforming grace as is evidenced by the way that they live both openly and more important, secretly. And oh, Father, I pray that you would change us. Both the lost who hear this message, oh, Father, save them. And for the saved to hear this message, convict us of sin and help us, Father, to be sensitive to the sin that arises in our hearts that we may do what your Spirit calls us to do, to confess and to repent as on the day we first believed. And may you be glorified in our living lives that are consistent with the grace that saved us and thus showing the world what God is like. Lord, we praise you for this time now and ask you to bless it. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and we are going to begin today this monolith, this massive climb up this great text of the Bible on the resurrection both of Jesus Christ and the believer. Today we'll only look at two verses of that. But the rest of our time and the weeks ahead, we are going to be blessed, oh, so blessed. But Paul begins this chapter with kind of a subtle warning that I think would be so helpful for us and necessary in all of our lives, as I prayed, that some hearing my voice right now would be convicted that all of this time, as we saw in the pool of baptism this morning, the brothers who gave their testimonies, that each one of them had a very consistent theme. Once I thought I was lost, but I thought I was a child of God. I was a religious unbeliever until the Lord peeled the blinders off my eyes. And though I had been in church all of these years, I discovered that I desperately needed a Savior to come and change my heart. As a pastor, I get to meet lots of people who wear the Christian label. Especially here in the South, it seems that most people believe if you're going to present yourself as a civilized person, then you must also present yourself as a Christian. It makes evangelism very hard in the South because there's a lot of pretense. It's socially acceptable to be a Christian here. And so if you call yourself a Christian, then that means you, you probably own a Bible you wear or at least have a cross in some fashion, and you attend church at least once or twice a year, 
Unless you really want to feel spiritual, then you may attend every week. What further evidence could there possibly be necessary to demonstrate that you're a child of God? I own a Bible, I have a cross, I wear it around my neck, and I attend church now and then. Unfortunately, this approach to Christianity has been with us ever since the days of the early church. In fact, the church of Corinth had a number of people who clung to the misconception of what they thought was true saving faith and what true saving faith is all about. They missed it. They had their church, they had their religious traditions, they had the gifts of the Spirit at work in their congregation, and they had no less than the Apostle Paul as their founding pastor. I mean, what more evidence do you need than that? Surely if you're a part of that church, you got to be a Christian. you got to be a child of God. Not so. Not even in Paul's church, which does my heart good. <laughs> Nevertheless, throughout the first letter of Paul to the church of Corinth, Paul expresses concern again and again over whether their salvation was true, whether it was genuine. Let's flip our pages a little bit. We'll come back to chapter 15. Keep your finger there, but go back with me to chapter 6. Such an important text. Verses 9 and 10. Here's a warning. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means this. People who live like that go to hell regardless of their profession of faith. People who live like that go to hell. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. You hear Galatians 5 and you think fruit of the Spirit, right? But watch this, Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are these. A little bit different than in 1 Corinthians. Deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? People who act like this go to hell. That's it. It's a hard message. I mean, who's he writing to here? He's writing to the church, writing to the church of Corinth, writing to the church of Galatia. He's not out on the, out on the city streets preaching this. He's sending it in a letter to a church. People who act like this go to hell. There in chapter 6, key words, do not be deceived. Now, why would he say that? The only reason I can think of why he would say that is because people were being self-deceived. Do not be deceived. Some of the members of that church were deceived. Some of them thought that assurance of salvation was all about the profession of faith. Their confidence was in the fact that they called themselves Christians. And Paul is saying here, you can call yourself anything you like. 
But if you live an unrighteous lifestyle, if your life is dominated and ruled by the lust of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You sound scandalous? Imagine Jesus saying that to the Pharisees again and again. I mean, they were the most religious people alive. The reason they wanted to kill him is because they, he kept questioning whether they were children of God. In fact, at one point he told them, you are of your father, not the devil, I mean, not Abraham, but the devil. And you lie. Therefore, you speak his language, same language, same character, same pride, same self-righteousness. It doesn't matter if you worship at the temple. You can worship anywhere you want. doesn't mean you're saved. Chapter 10, Paul raises the same kind of warning. Flip over with me to chapter 10. We're moving toward 15. Same warning. He reminds them about the children of Israel wandering through the desert. You remember, God rescued them from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They saw the glory of God on the mountain. They followed the Shekinah glory of God through the wilderness. Here's what Paul is saying here. I won't read all of it. Summarize the beginning. Here's what he says. He's reminding them that just because the Israelites walked through the desert under the Shekinah glory of God, and just because they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and just because they ate the manna and drank water from a rock, it does not necessarily mean that they belong to God, that they were in right relationship with God, that they had been reconciled to God. Well, how do we know that's true? Pick up with verse 5. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In other words, they died. They died. They did not enter the promised land, the picture of salvation. And if that's not explicit enough, enough begin with verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Now these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. That's what they live for, verse 8. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in one day. What's that about? Judgment of God. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord or tempt the Lord, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, verse 11, as an example. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, here's the warning. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The example was these people who were more blessed than anybody who had ever lived. All of the privileges of God was theirs. They received God's law. They received the Ten Commandments. They, they got water from a rock. They got manna. They got walking through the Red Sea. They saw the Ten Plagues. They saw their children rescued when the death angel came on Passover. They saw it all. And yet they still didn't believe. Well, they said they believed. 
but their lives demonstrated otherwise. Every opportunity, complain. Every opportunity, grumble. Every opportunity, dissension, factions, immorality. And yet, we're children of God. This is a warning to the church. And then we come to chapter 15. And once again, we get a hint of Paul's concern that there were religious unbelievers in the, in the church of Corinth who did not know that they were lost. The whole chapter is about resurrection. First, Paul establishes that the resurrection of Christ was a historic event. It was witnessed by hundreds of people. He himself had an appearance of Jesus, saw him in his resurrected body. Beginning in verse 20, then, he teaches us about the resurrection that Jesus won for us by his resurrection, that all of us someday, who, all of us who truly believe and are children of God, will one day be raised incorruptible. The resurrection is the believer's ultimate hope. It's our final hope. It's our greatest hope. Remember John Patton last week told you about how he uh, announced to his church that he was leaving to the New Hebrides as a missionary, and one of the guys said, cannibals, they're going to be eaten by cannibals. And uh, Patton said, well, sir, um, think about that. You're old. Soon you're going to be laid to rest in the grave and be eaten by worms. So whether, you were eat whether I am in the end eaten by worms or by cannibals, it doesn't matter to me. As long as in the resurrection I stand before you and Christ glorified in him. His hope was resurrection. That's why he suffered. That's why he was willing to endure the loss of his wife, the loss of his child, all the criticism after he left the island of Tana, all of that that we saw last week. Why did he do it? Because he believed the resurrection. And so look at the very last verse of chapter 15. This is Paul's whole point. I mean, who cares about the resurrection? You should care. It should, be your, it should not only be your greatest glorious, final hope. But that hope, remember what John says? Whoever has this hope purifies himself. That hope should do something to your life now. It should encourage you to do whatever God calls you to do, knowing that it counts in God's eyes. Watch this. Very last verse. He leaves this great application to the very last verse of the chapter. Verse 58. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Resurrection. Resurrection. That's why Paul was able to say in Romans, for I consider that the, the, the momentary light sufferings of this life are not to be compared to the glory that is set aside for us in heaven, at the resurrection. Resurrection is everything to us. Without the resurrection, listen, without the resurrection, Christianity is worthless. You understand that? Without the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, but the whole package, his resurrection, which brings about our resurrection, without all of that, Christianity is worthless. You say, well, that's pretty strong language. Well, I'm just getting it from Paul. Watch this. Chapter 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is vain, empty. 
Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Paul lived a hard life. I mean, he's beaten, he's rejected, he's stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, constantly being betrayed by false brothers. I mean, how can you live like that? Answer, resurrection. I'm not living for this life. Not living for this life. The problem was, some in the church were actually teaching that there is no such thing as resurrection. No such thing as resurrection. And you might think, really? Is that possible? Could anybody, could anybody who claims to be a Christian deny resurrection? The answer is, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that gets into the church. I mean, just look in the last 20 years, things that have happened in the church with the, the emergent movement, open theism, and the, not, not even to mention the Pentecostal, which I don't even consider part of the church. Um, the crazy stuff that happens, the crazy teachings that are brought into the church. And some people believe there was no resurrection. And part of the implication here that we'll see as we go along in weeks ahead was simply this, and it's why Paul's raising the issue of salvation. You cannot deny resurrection and be a Christian. You just can't come up with your own theology. You can't make it up as you go along. You can't just say, hey, this is all we have. This is the only life we have. This is the only thing that matters. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Paul nails them on this argument all the way through. How do we know that some were denying the resurrection? Look at verse 12. How do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? How can you possibly say that? And then he will argue this. If there is no resurrection then Christ isn't raised, and if Christ isn't raised, then your life is hopeless. Your life is hopeless. Why even come to church? Why claim to be a Christian? It's not going to get you anywhere. Why not just live for pleasure? Be a hedonist. Be an existentialist. Be in an aisle. Be anything you want. doesn't matter. You're going to live, you're going to die, you're going to rot in the ground, and that's the end. Paul's saying you can't be a Christian and believe that. You can't be a child of God and adopt that kind of foolish Greek philosophy. Notice how Paul very smoothly and subtly raises the possibility of religious unbelief with this word, if. let's, Let's take a run at this starting with verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also, watch this, gospel, which you also received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. Watch this, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now some who are theologically minded would say, hey, listen, is a first-class condition, if should mean since. Since you believed. And that's, that's possible, that's probably true. Since you hold fast to the word 
which I preached. But you can't get around the next phrase, next phrase unless you believed in vain. The whole issue is if. If you hold fast the word. The problem is there were some in the body who weren't holding fast to the word. They were not living in obedience to the word of God. They were out doing their own thing. They, they, there are people, if you go with our team downtown on Friday night, you will meet people who are also downtown on Friday night sharing a form of the gospel that says you can live any way you want to live in this life. The only thing that God requires is that you pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into your life. What do they call themselves? The, um, where's Alex Long? Tell me who they are. The Kingdom Baptists. Yes, the Kingdom Baptists. That's what they believe. And so you can commit adultery after that. You can rob banks. You can commit murder. But as long as you keep saying, I believe in Jesus, you're in. And they have a weird twist on it. You may have to spend some time in purgatory. Slip in a little Catholicism. Because they know that what they're saying, inherently, this doesn't match up with Scripture. You may have to suffer a little while between here and heaven, but eventually you'll get there. I'm telling you what, people will believe anything they want. And they'll try to convince you to believe it too. Don't believe them. The Word of God is our truth. And what Paul is saying is, if you don't believe resurrection, there's no hope. That is our hope. That Christ raised, therefore we will be raised. And if we truly believe that, if that is really what God has put into our hearts, then it will be evidenced by a life that is lived in righteousness, in holiness, not perfection. This is the same theme that Paul brings up again and again in his writings. He knew that there would always be unregenerate people in every church. I just assume every week when I stand here that I'm, I'm speaking to some who are religious unbelievers who don't know it. And all you have to do is come to a baptism service and hear the testimonies of lives transformed after years of them being in the church, even involved in ministry. There are people in every church who are unregenerate. That is, there are people who at some point in their lives prayed the sinner's prayer, they walked an aisle to the front of the church professing Christ as Lord, and yet they remain lost. Their hope of salvation was in what they did according to the tradition of their church or their denomination, but the result was not true salvation, the result was simply self-righteousness. It has proof of that. And proof of that was, is in their behavior that consistently demonstrates a heart of unchanged unbelief. They lack the fruit of the Spirit. There's no, no evidence of a life change. And the crucial thing about the gospel is that it's not the work of man. It is the work of God. Yes, man participates, but his participation is a dependent participation. God's work and God's initiating work is independent. It has to be a miracle of God. And with that miracle of God comes not only forgiveness of sins and justification, it comes 
a heart that suddenly desires righteousness, a heart that suddenly hates its sin, a heart that eagerly desires to repent. But these people were the same people after they made a profession as they were before. They just kept attending church and calling themselves Christians. In Paul's words, the gospel was the means by which you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. We find this all over the New Testament. Where did Paul get this? Um, where did Paul get this, this truth that he taught? Um, he got it from none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught this all the time. And we like to take his, little, his parables and kind of twist them and put meanings into them that sound, sound interesting or sound like they apply to some specific aspect to our lives. And you know what? The gospel, the, the parables, for the most part, they were all some, they were all designed to demonstrate some aspect of salvation. He called it the kingdom of God. By the way, the word vain here means without evidence. Unless you believed in vain, unless your believing was without evidence or to no purpose or without effect. Some in the church made a profession in faith in Christ that produced no evidence of regeneration and apparently had no effect on the way they thought, spoke, and lived. It's just another way of saying they did not hold fast the word of God which was preached to them. Listen, this is so critical to understand that being a Christian is not just a doctrine to understand, it is a person to follow. Do you understand that? It is not just a doctrine to believe. It's not only a doctrine to believe that Jesus Christ was God in flesh, that he lived a perfect life for 33 years to establish righteousness for all who would believe, that he died for the sins of all of those people, he who knew no sin, that's the doctrine. But Christianity is not just a doctrine to believe. It's a person to follow. And if you are truly a child of God, then the first thing that's going to happen is your desires are going to change. Your affections are going to change. Some of the things that you used to hate, you now love, like the word of God, like church, like God's people, like telling people about Christ. And one guy in our congregation I won't tell you who it is. I'll just tell you the story. He'll laugh when he hears it. Uh, he's not here, so you he won't hear him out loud, laugh out loud. He used to say, you know what? Before I came to know Christ, I just hated the knock at the door. Some guy would come to me on Saturday morning and knock on my door and catch me watching cartoons, eating cereal, sitting in my underwear, and I'd have to go answer the door, and somebody wants to tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about that. I want to watch TV and eat my cereal. And you know what? His life is radically changed. Radically changed. I remember the first day he went out knocking on doors, and he looked at me and he said, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> if there's anybody who doesn't believe in radical life change as a result of the gospel, just have them come talk to me. Something happens. God's not just changing the faceplate on your profession. He's changing your heart. And if there is no heart change, 
as is demonstrated by behavioral change, then there's reason to question whether there was any real change other than the label that you've chosen to wear. It changes. I remember. I remember when I, when I became a child of God. I grew up in the church. I was baptized in the church. And yet there was, oh, I felt conviction some days. I mean, I'm a human being made in the image of God. I, I know guilt. It doesn't necessarily mean I've got salvation. I feel bad about sin when I was lost. Yeah, couldn't do anything about it. And I remember when I was, you know, I guess I was 18 years old when I came to Christ. And how it was like the blinders were lifted from my eyes and I saw myself for who I really was and I saw Christ for who he was as best as I could understand him from what little knowledge I had. And it broke my heart. But the evidence was not that I went around saying, I'm a Christian now, I'm a Christian now, I'm a Christian now. But rather it was people coming and saying, what's going on with you? Things have changed in your life. You know what? The first thing I did, I started cutting off friendships. I didn't want to be around those people anymore. They are tempting me into sin. I just wanted to leave them. There were people in my church I didn't know, but I was so attracted to them. I was drawn to them. And then my college, when I went to school, I didn't care about the, the people who claimed that they were Christians and they were living on the fringe of, of immorality versus morality. They were always over there. You're wondering, what in the world are they doing? I wanted to be as far away from those people as possible because I know that was me. That was me. My heart desires a change. I couldn't explain it. All I knew was the things I used to hate, I now loved. The things I used to love, Many of them I now hate. And what explanation can I give? The only one that works. God did something to my heart. He removed the heart of stone. He replaced it with a living heart of flesh, as Ezekiel 36 says he would. That's salvation. You know what the greatest picture of salvation is? The story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth. And he stood up and he walked out, the, out of the tomb. John said, we love God because he first loved us. It is a work of God. It's a work of God. Paul got his teaching from none other than God himself, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was always concerned about religious unbelievers who possessed useless, unbelieving faith. That interesting term, unbelieving faith. They had faith in something. They had faith in their religion. They had faith in their ability to please God, but it, it was an unbelieving faith. Their trust, their dependence... What their hope was in was not God alone, but in what they could do for themselves, maybe with a little of God's help. 
Isn't that interesting in the, the story of the publican and the tax, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple? <clears throat> so slick what the Pharisee said. Lord, I thank you, doesn't that sound godly? That I am not like him. And you start taking that apart and you think, was that, was that right or was that wrong? I mean, did he have a Godward focus or a manward focus? But here's the thing. All he was doing was praising God that when he compares himself with other people, he comes out better. He was praising God that somehow God had given him the capacity to be more self-righteous than other people. The difference between him who went home unjustified and the tax collector who Jesus said, this man went home justified, you know what the difference is? The publican wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. The tax collector wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He just beat on his breast and he said, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You want a sinner's prayer? It's the only one I know. Maybe Psalm 51. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I would submit to you that that is the heart cry of a man upon whom God the Holy Spirit is already moving to regenerate. Because nobody cries out to God like that unless there's already been a change of heart. It's easy to say you believe. Classic teaching on this, by the way, is found in Matthew 13. Let's jump over there for a couple of minutes. Matthew 13, and you're familiar with this. This is Jesus' story of the sower and the soils. We're not going to read all of that. You can read it on your own. I'll just pick up with verse 18 because the apostles were sitting there listening to all of this, and they didn't know what it meant. And so they asked him, Lord, what, what do you mean by all of this? And he says this. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky place, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Verse 22, and the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. Notice, every one of these people heard the word of God. They were religious people. They were hearing it week after week after week. Here's the word of God, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The amount of fruit isn't the qualifier. But are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? That was the issue. Jesus taught on this truth in other parables as well. Kind of flip the page over still in Matthew 13. Verse 47 through 50, he spoke of 
different kinds of fish that were caught in the same net. And you want to hear, you want to read a lot of different versions of, of what people think this is about. It's crazy if you read the commentaries. Listen, Jesus is still talking about the gospel. It's the same net, catches a bunch of different fish. But then the fisherman goes through the fish. These are good, these are bad. And what happens to those who are bad? who are deemed bad by the fishermen, they're cast off. So it will be in the end of the age, verse 49, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's sobering. That's sobering. Jesus teaches about two kinds of houses back in chapter 7 and also in Luke Chapter 6, I believe. But in Matthew chapter 7, the wise man and the foolish man, you know that story? You know the song, right? Wise man built his house upon the what? Rock. What is the rock? Rock is the word of God. But it's not just listening to the word of God. Luke makes it clear that it's obedience to the word of God. That is the rock. That is the foundation. It's obedience to the word of God. And then when the storm of God's wrath came upon those two houses, one was built on the foundation of obedience to the word and the other had no foundation at all. And when the storm of God's wrath came and passed by, the house without the rock of obedience under it as its foundation was swept away. The text says it fell and great was its fall. Jesus teaches the same truth in the story of the virgins without the oil for their lamps and the servants who wasted their talents. And, and Jesus makes it nowhere more clear than this if you're in Matthew 7, look at verses 21 through 23. Watch this. Okay, same context, same theme. Here's the point, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Lord, you're my Lord. Not everyone who says that. You can say anything you want. Not everybody who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But some will. Who are they? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? Amazing, Jesus doesn't deny any of that. But verse 23, he would dare declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. You can be religious. You can be a religious leader. You can have massive, massive numbers of people following you and be lost. I think of uh, the Wesley brothers when I think of stories like this. The Wesley brothers, John Wesley, Charles Wesley. Brothers in the 1700s went to seminary, graduated from seminary. Back then, if you wanted a real career, you were either a lawyer, a doctor, or a preacher. Because um, you could have, a, you could, you could have an, a really good living 
And so if your parents really wanted you to succeed, they did everything in their power to help you get to law school, um, medical school, or, or seminary. And they both chose seminary, but they were lost. And they even became missionaries to America long before we were the United States or were independent. They came to work among the Indians of America, and they got thrown out. Charles got involved in a relationship that he had no business getting involved in. The police were after him. He got on a boat to come back to Bonnie, England, and on the way, a storm hit, and the storm was so severe, everybody thought the boat was going to sink, and he's cowering over in the corner Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. What am I going to do? There's, it's hopeless. We're going to die. And he hears singing. And he, he goes, I guess, down through the nave, and he finds this group of men. And, um, and they're sitting together with joyful expressions on their face, and the ship is up and down, and there's water coming in, and they're singing hymns. And he looks at them and says, what are you guys doing? And they said, don't you know Jesus? He's dressed like a preacher. You don't know Jesus? You know who those people were? They were the Moravians. They, uh, their ministry began under Count von Zinzendorf. And they were the first missionaries of that period. And they were coming home from a mission tour in the United, well, in America, and when everything around them was falling apart, they trusted in God. God, our lives are yours. Take us now. Wonderful. Take us later. And Charles Wesley, I mean, John Wesley spent some time with those brothers, and within a week or two, he writes in his journal, the blinders came off. The curtain of heaven was tore open, as it were, before my eyes, and I realized my desperate need of a Savior, and everything changed. Soon afterward, Charles Wesley, the great Reformation hymn writer, we sing so many of his songs, I named one of my sons after him. He too came to Christ. They were preachers. They were missionaries, and they were lost. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, do I know you? John chapter 10, 15. We read this earlier today. So misunderstood, this text. Jesus says this. Turn there, if you will. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that's key, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That's painful. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of my word, which I have spoken to you. Here we go, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless, of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. I mean, what's that a reference to? 
Verse 7, if you abide in me, watch this, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, here we go, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made Fool. What's he saying? The test and quality of the branch is whether it bears fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it is cut off and thrown into the fire. It's the same illustration, just said in a different way. And the word abide here, I know, and Andrew Murray and other evangelical mystics have taken this and made it out to be some kind of superiority of spirituality that you can attain, some kind of organic connection with the Holy Spirit that other mortals, Christians, never experience. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about living a life of obedience to God. A life ruled by a heart that desires to bear fruit for the glory of God. That's why he says at the end, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. Abiding, you know what abiding is? It's this, it's persevering. It's the perseverance of the saints. No matter what happens to me, my life is ruled by Scripture. No matter what comes my way, my life is ruled by my hope in the resurrection. My life is ruled by love for God and love for his people and love for his word. And no matter what happens, I'm not going to be shaken from that. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to abide. I'm going to abide. That's what this is about. Jesus is talking about whether or not you can truly call yourself a Christian, whether or not you can truly call yourself one of his. The question is, does your life bear fruit? Does it bear fruit of repentance? Does it bear fruit unto God? In other words, when you sin, how does your heart respond? Do you go, oops, no big deal. I'm not as bad as my brother or someone else in the church, pretty good still, pretty good with God. I mean, I I hadn't murdered anybody. All I did was look at a little pornography, or all I did was cheat on my taxes, or all I did was, you fill in the blank, stole from my employer, said something pitifully mean and ungodly to my wife, and you go, oops, that's not a good sign. You know what a true child of God does when he sins? Oh, God, I can't believe I've dishonored your name again. God, praise you for the blood of Christ. Praise you for the promise that you will forgive every sin I confessed and that your blood covers all of my sin. I have no righteousness to recommend to you. The only thing I claim today, this moment, is the blood and righteousness of Christ. Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me. That's a changed heart. 
It's a changed heart. That's what it means to abide. Jesus says, abide in me ten times in chapter 15. And every time we have baptism, as we did this morning, we hear testimonies of people who attended church for years thinking that they were true believers, only to discover later that their faith was a sham. They had an intellectual knowledge of Jesus Christ because perhaps they grew up in the church, but their hearts had not been changed by Christ. And as a result, their lives were marked by disobedience to his word. Excuse-making, blame-shifting, but not repentance. Someone will, will probably say, hearing me preach like this, it sounds like you're preaching salvation by works. The Apostle Paul would respond, Meganoita, may it never be. This is not salvation by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, but that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not a result of works so that no man can boast. Don't we love that passage of scripture? Love it. How many of you love it? Raise your hand. Love that text. You know what he's saying? Everything about salvation is of God. Even your faith is of God. And Peter writes to the believers, he says, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. He talks about those to whom the Lord has granted repentance. Even your faith is a gift from God. Those who belong to God get that. Well, not everybody, but, but here's the thing. Clearly he's saying, he's saying, your salvation is only by grace, through faith. God's part is independent and sovereign. Your part is dependent. It is God's work that initiates. You respond in faith. But what happens when faith is genuine? God's grace, faith, and then what? Well, there's no period there. Keep on reading. We love 2, 8, and 9, and we skip verse 10, which says this, um, which says this. I got away from my notes. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. By the way, I love Paul's choice of words here, created. Ex nihilo, out of nothing created, like he created the heavens and the earth, he created. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, he says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone abroad in your hearts. It's salvation, it's a creative work of God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God was sovereign over the grace. He was sovereign to produce the faith. And the power that produced grace and faith in our lives, saving us, is the power that also produces obedience. This is not salvation by works. Let's just be careful that we don't shortchange God. Do we believe or do we not believe that God has the power to save a man? Well, of course he does. 
then are we saying that God has the power to save but not sanctify? That it leaves that up to man to accomplish on his own? May it never be. God is the one who grants salvation, who gives us the ability even to believe, and then sovereignly orchestrates the works that he has designed for us to do. All I'm saying is, if you are in the vine, if you are a living branch, you will produce fruit. And there were many in the church at Corinth, they weren't producing fruit, they were presenting the deeds of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. James, the brother of our Lord, said it this way, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister was without clothing and need of daily food and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, as if that were a blessing, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what good is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James 2, 14 through 17. Back in the 1600s, 15 and 1600s, the reformers used to say it like this, the faith that saves is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by works. It has to be because even those are part of the grace of God. It was accomplished by the Spirit James goes on to say in verse 19, you believe that God is one? That's good theology. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Believe, believe. You believe, demons believe. Why is your belief any different than demonic belief? His answer, the only way to test whether your belief and their belief are any different is by what is evidence in the fruit of your life. You examine it, not me. You examine your heart. You examine your heart. Believing the facts about the gospel, that they're true, that Jesus really did die on the cross and rise again, that's wonderful. Demons believe that. They know the truth. The problem is they have not been changed by the truth. The mark of one who has truly come to Christ savingly is a changed life. They don't continue in the old way of life. They repent and begin living in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And most of the time, they can't even explain what happened. It's just suddenly I've got new desires. When my mother came to faith in Christ, you know what the evidence was? She had an insatiable desire to read the Bible. And so many other people that we've led to Christ here, that God has used this ministry to draw to Christ. The first thing they'll tell us is, remember when Denny Helms came to Christ, all of a sudden he had a magic Bible. That's what he called it, his magic Bible. And Whoa, that sounds weird, what's that? I've read this thing so many times. I grew up in the church. I never understood it, but now I open it, and it's life. It's breath. It's food. It's my delight. I understand it for the first time in my life. It's like magic. I can't explain it. It's just true. That's the evidence of a changed heart. Here's the way the Apostle John says it. John, 1 John 3.10, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, beloved, the mark of one who is truly born again is that they live in obedience to the word. They want to obey. They hate their sin. They love Jesus. They love God's people. They love the church. 
And they're truly changed by the power of God. Somebody will ask, what about people who grew up in the church all their lives and perhaps even served on ministry, went to the mission field, and then at some point in their life, they just bail. They deny Christ, they walk away. John has an answer to that too. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. No matter how long it takes, time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time, the truth will come out. It's not that this person lost his salvation. To the contrary. It's just a demonstration that they never really had it. Despite all their religious professions, their attendance and services of worship, and their previous sacrifices, if they do not persevere, they prove that they were never really children of God. Because it is God's power that causes us to persevere. Jesus said it this way, John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, that doesn't mean believing theology. That means living in obedience to my word. Then you prove that you are truly children of God. You don't have to know a lot of theology to abide in God's word. I meet people all the time in third world countries who know, they don't know diddly about the Bible. I mean, a lot of them don't even have a, a Bible in their language. But they know some of the truth. They know the gospel. And their lives are a reflection of modesty and purity and holiness. They're so eager for the word. They walk for miles and miles and miles to come here at taught. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's a sobering truth, isn't it, beloved? I'm sobered by it every time I step behind this sacred desk to preach God's word because I know that there are always people in attendance or listening on the internet, internet even here at Calvary Bible Church, who are religious unbelievers and they don't even know it. And I don't know it either. But every time we have baptism, somebody will come into the pool and say, I was one. Oh, beloved, don't take your salvation for granted. Don't allow yourself to believe that just because you prayed the so-called sinner's prayer or got baptized or served in some official capacity in the church, it means that you can have confidence before God that you're saved. And beloved, if you're ministering to someone, counseling someone, discipling someone, or trying to disciple someone, and their life is racked by sin, by sin, by sin, by sin, do not hesitate to question their salvation. You may very well be the instrument by which that person comes to the cross. I would submit to you that that's why I believe our counseling ministry at Calvary Bible Church is our most fruitful evangelistic ministry because it specifically brings the word of God to bear on sin. And many times people come to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. This is, this is the, the teaching of Scripture all through the New Testament. Don't take your salvation for granted. If you have it, you can't lose it. But if you have it, it'll bear fruit. It'll bear fruit. What's the test? 
I think the best test of Scripture, most concise, is 1 John. You want to see God's perspective on what is a true believer and what is an unbeliever, a religious unbeliever? Read 1 John. Make a list of all the characteristics and attributes of a true ch Christian, true child of God. Make a separate list of all the things that, that uh, John identifies as characteristics of an unbeliever. And when you get it all written down, compare your life to it and be prepared to be stunned. Because even if you come away going, well, I, I, I have confidence I'm a child of God, but I can't believe how far I have to grow, that'll be good for you. That'll be good. And here's a shorter test. Ask yourself some questions like this. Do I love God's Word? Say, I love. I remember a lady I was counseling. Do you love God's Word? Oh, I love God's Word. I love God's Word. I love God's Word. Oh, I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And what you read in it today? Oh, I didn't read it today. Yesterday? No. Day before? No. When was the last time you read it? Oh, it's been months. But you love the Word of God. You don't love the Word of God. Say what you will. Your actions prove otherwise. Do you love it? Am I living in obedience to God's word? Do I love God's people? Do I love the church? And so many people who profess to, to um, be Christians say, I have no use for the church. No, I'm not saying they're lost. I am saying, better rethink that. Jesus loves the church. Am I quick to confess my sin to God and others when I sin against them? Am I engaging in some secret sin of which I have no desire or intention to repent? It's a mark of an unbeliever. Do I love to pray and sing and worship my heavenly Father? Do I love to talk to others about the glory of my Lord? Oh, beloved, don't take your salvation for granted. And you may be saying, it sounds like you're talking to me. I hate to admit it. I've been too proud to admit it before. Maybe you're talking to me. What do I do? Answer, be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Lay yourself out before him and do the only thing you can do. Pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know the Beatitudes of Jesus? First sermon he ever preached. Matthew, you know what the first of the Beatitudes was? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who view themselves as spiritually bankrupt. Come to God and say, God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. I'm not accepting you into my heart. I'm asking, will you receive me? Will you accept me, not on my own righteousness, but on the merits of Christ? Will you receive me? Forgive me, God. Please forgive me. Grant me eternal life. Grant me repentance. Change my heart. Beloved, don't take your salvation for granted. The gospel has been the means of your salvation if you hold fast the word that has been preached to you unless you believed in vain. True saving faith is not measured by what we say, but by whether or not we persevere in obedience to the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, days like this, hard to be a preacher and say things I know that some will misunderstand. 
that others will find them glorious truths. We are your sheep. We love to hear your voice, even when you tell us things that are difficult to comprehend or receive. We love you, and we praise you for being honest with us, for giving us your truth, for revealing and exposing the condition of our hearts. God, grant us repentance and desire to live for you and serve you and worship you, hate our sin and love your people. Oh, God, do all of these things in our lives. Change us, Father. Even those of us who believe, change us more into the image of Christ, we pray. And we pray it all by the name of our Savior, Jesus.